Um, two real quick business things that I'm just excited to talk about, and uh, I'm going to talk about the first one, and hopefully while I'm talking about the first one, I'll remember the second, because I can't remember it right now. <clears throat> the first one is we are this Friday getting ready to soft launch our youth ministry. Um, so God has blessed us with a couple families coming in, so we want to say, hey, we've got families, we want to have something for students, and so um, so where's Sarah and Josh? Sarah and Josh, you guys can stand up. So underneath Ricky, who is kind of over all families, Sarah and Josh are helping up uh, lead this, the youth ministry. I don't know what we're going to call it. Um, the stumps, how about that? You know, like, get it? Because like, they're, in, I thought it was funny, yeah. That just came off my head. Um, so these guys are going to start helping us launch that. So you guys can grab a seat. Um, so Friday night at our missional community, we'll kick off um, kind of a student ministry deal, and it's like nothing formal and nothing official, uh, but we just wanted to get that started. So there again, it's just cool to see a full band and Pat leading worship with Matthew and then talking about student ministry. It's just, it's, it's a good day. Uh, I don't remember the other thing, so we'll keep going. Um, Luke 6 is where we're going to be. Now, what I've been trying to do is go through uh, a chapter every two weeks. We're trying just to go, um, there's basically two types of preaching, expository and topical and there's always ways you can blend those together. Uh, but we're trying to do what it's called expository. So going through the entire book of Luke, um, kind of verse by verse, but that would take a long time. So we said, okay, let's try to do a chapter every two weeks and see if we can keep up with that. Um, so Luke 6 is Jesus' first real big sermon. It's one of the big ones. Uh, Matthew calls it the Beatitudes. It's just a big deal. So trying to get through Luke 6 in two weeks is a miracle. Um, just so you guys know, I'm, I'm a pretty big deal, so that's how we can do it. Um, look at that laughter. But you weren't supposed to laugh at that part. That was true. But anyways, we'll work on it. Um, but we've been titling this series, A Meal with Jesus, and kind of based off of a book I read uh, by a guy named Steve Timmis. And his basic premise, you see what I did there, is that um, in Luke, every Jesus is either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. So everything around Jesus' ministry stems around a meal stands around reclining at the table, talking, eating. Um, if you're a good Baptist in the room, fellowshipping, you know, this idea, that's how Jesus did ministry. Yes, he preached, don't get me wrong. Yes, he did tons of miracles, but where the real stuff happened was around the table. Um, and so one, one of the things Bree and I did when we bought our house, we had a, uh, the biggest dining room we've ever had, and we said, what is the biggest dimensions of table that we could fit into this house? Um, so it's a six-by-six six table. It holds 12 people. The thing is massive. It's staying in the house when we sell it because I'm not going to get a hernia picking it up again. Uh, but it's huge. And the whole premise of it was this idea. We want to have people in. We want to have community. We want to eat together. We want to celebrate. Uh, because there's something that happens within a house, within a living room, that's never going to happen here. You know what I'm talking about? There's a level of intimacy that takes place in someone's home, having a conversation. Um, after you're just kind of in this food coma and you're just talking, and you, you'll throw out kind of a Fisher comment. Does anyone else do this? You throw out a comment, back. Like, okay, here's just a little, I'm going to leak this out and see how much I get judged. And if people don't judge me too much for this, then maybe I can open up a little more. Maybe I can open up a little more. Until they go, bro, okay, that's enough. Like, don't say anything else. Um, so we just kind of have this conversation where it just feels good. It feels right. It feels welcome. Uh, you feel accepted. You feel loved. And something magical happens there. So we just kind of toyed around with the idea with the Gospel of Luke, what would it look like for us to, to teach through the book of Luke with this idea of, we just want to know what Jesus said, we want to know what Jesus did, we want to know who he's about, um, who he's loving on, who he's choosing to spend time with, and, and go from there. And so that's what we've kind of been working through. 
um, through Luke. So tonight we're going to try to finish up Luke 6. Uh, I'm going to skip over some of the stuff. Um, no offense, it didn't just make the cut for tonight, but we're going to pick it up in verse 43. Luke 6, 43. So we're skipping over, if you were here last week, we're skipping over uh, love your enemies, which would have been a really good one to preach. Uh, we're skipping over the judge others, which would have been a really good one to preach. I encourage you guys just to read through that and study through that. Um, that, that one always seems to pop up on Facebook, you know what I'm saying? Like, only God can judge me. It's like, you're more worried about my judgment than God's, you're in trouble, uh, if that's your argument. But anyways, just go look on Say What You Want Delonica, that's everywhere. Are y'all part of Say What You Want Delonica? You should be. It's awesome. You can cancel cable and just watch that. So, <coughs> excuse me, Luke 6, picking up in verse 43. We ready? Here we go. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now again, you just have to know uh, there's, we could spend, like even just the one verse we're going to try to highlight tonight, we could spend a month on. There's so much good stuff there. We're going to allude to it a little bit. Uh, but if you have a pen or a pencil or if you're taking notes or whatever you do, um, circle this next verse because this is where we're going to land. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. <coughs> Excuse me. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had, a well, it had been well built. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who has built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. So let's pray. Um, God, would you do what only you could do tonight? Uh, Father, my, my words aren't anything, God. It's, it's you and your spirit speaking through me. Uh, Father, we just pray tonight that you would open up our hearts to uh, hear from you. God, would we rightly look at your scripture and let it read us? Um, God, we want to know what you have to say. And Father, we want to be able to apply that to our lives today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, does anyone like short sermons? All right, here we go. Let's read verse 46 one more time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So, here, here's the premise of it. You ready? Just zoom in. Here we go. We're going to talk about this, and then we're going to go. Do what God tells you. Fair enough? All right, let's go home. Makes sense, right? Common sense. Do what God tells you. Um, anybody else have discernment in here? Like you just have, you feel like you have the gift of, gift of discernment or maybe the curse depending on how you look at it. Anyone? What? Okay. So <clears throat> I have kind of a discerning spirit and something about this verse has messed me up all week. Um, there's sometimes scripture just clear, man, I can't wait to share this message. I can't wait um, to uh, relay the message that God has given me for our people. But then there's some weeks like this week where it's like, man, something just doesn't feel right. Like some, there's a check in my spirit. I've researched, I've read more about this passage than I have almost any passage in a long time. Because th there's got to be more than this. So set up the context of where we are. 
Um, Jesus is preaching to a huge t- amount of people. He just picked his disciples. He came down. And so as he's wrapping up his message, he says, all right, here's the deal. Um, if you call me Lord, Lord, do what I tell you to. And one of my professors talked about this in the class. Um, it's called the WSM. Have you ever heard of this uh, WSM? The what strikes me method of scripture. So I'm just going to read it until something pops out, something strikes me, and that must be truth. That's objective. I'm going to preach that. I'm going to apply that. And so as we're reading this, as we're going through love, I understand love. Don't judge. Okay, I'll try. Um, bear, true, bear, tree bears good fruit. Sounds good. Um, do what the Lord tells me to. Got it. That strikes me. That sticks out. I'm doing that. That's all there is. That is the message of the gospel. Do what Jesus tells me to do. I'm going to do that. That sounds good. But is that really the truth of what he's trying to convey? Because we can maybe take something, um, what strikes me first, and try to apply this principle to our life, and that's, that's really not the point. Uh, any, anybody grew up in church? Joseph in the coat of, wow, Joseph in the coat of many colors, right? You guys know this story? His brothers were jealous of him, hated of him, all this kind of stuff. He wore this coat of many colors, made him mad, they're going to kill him, ended up selling him into slavery, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward, it's a credible story, you should go read it, end of Genesis. I didn't mean to say blah, 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 that sounded really like not good. Uh, scratch that one from the podcast. That was a mess up. So fast forward is way better way of saying blah, blah, blah. Get to the end. Um, he makes everything right. He makes out the huge verse, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But if we're just reading that, if we're just studying scripture, a big takeaway we could say is, I, I better not wear a bright coat because that might get me killed. Well, it struck me first, right? Like that's where all this started, that they were jealous of his coat. So the rest of my life, I'm just going to wear a dark coat. Someone prove me wrong. Right? So this idea of what strikes me first, we've got to get deeper into it. So verse 46, if we really start to dissect it, and we really start to discern and really put into picture what's happening here, is he really saying the only way you can call me Lord is if you do what I tell you to do. You've got to keep all my commands. You've got to do exactly what I'm telling you to. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do this? Let me maybe ask the question a different way. Uh, Why do you call me friend but never pick up the phone? Right? Why do you call me friend? This is just us. Like, no, Lord, us. This is just a general. Why do you call me a friend and never pick up the phone or, or never respond to my text? That's what you kids do these days, text. Or why do you call me boyfriend but never actually take me out anywhere? Right? Wink, wink. Come on, guys. Get it together. Um, Why do you call me boss but never accomplish the task that I asked you to accomplish? So if we take this kind of from uh, the Bible and apply it to us, why do you call me this and not do this? Uh, it's, It's the former, not the latter, that's the problem. It's not the secondary thing. The secondary is not taking place because the former is not established. Does that make sense? So we start saying, okay, I've just got to focus on, I've got to do what he told me to do. I've got to do, this is what he asked me. Don't call me Lord, Lord, unless you do what I tell me, or do what you tell me to do. So we focus on the second part, the latter thing. I just need to do more, do more, do more. But we totally forget the first part, Lord, Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? So maybe another way, um, why do you, or why do you call me friend but never pick up the phone? Are we actually friends? That would be the better question to ask. Not focusing on, but you never pick up the phone, but then ask the question, are we actually friends? Or why do you call me boyfriend, but never take me out? Are, are we breaking up? Is it time for a DTR? Is this relationship over? Do y'all know what DTR is? 
Okay, never mind. If you don't know, you don't deserve to know. Or the last one, why do you call me boss but never accomplish the things in front of me? Am I going to fire you? So we focus on the ending, but we don't, we kind of lose track of the beginning. The Lord, Lord, is that the biggest deal? We're focusing on do more. So here's, here's where I want to go tonight. Here's where we're kind of landing because we've got to take uh, contextually, we've got to figure out what Jesus is saying in this context and then blow it up to the Gospels and then blow it up to the whole canonization of Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament in the next 20 minutes. You ready? Here's what I'm trying to say. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't know who Jesus is. It doesn't matter what you do unless you know who Jesus is. So we read this, especially if you have some kind of church background where you have some kind of legalism bent in your body, which if you've grown up in church, I haven't figured out how this took place, uh, but there's always a legalism bent, a legalism bone somewhere in your body if you grew up in church. It's one of the greatest fears of me raising my kids in the local churches. I do not want them to have a legalistic bone in their body, that view of Jesus ever. But I'm kind of a pastor, so they have to be here. So what do we do then if it doesn't matter what you do if you don't know who he is? The first thing we've got to pick up, verse 46, is his audience. Who is he primarily talking to? Now, if you remember going back to the beginning of verse six, or chapter 6 last week, he picks his disciples. He comes down from the mountain. This is his first big sermon in front of people, and he's directly addressing the disciples first and the crowds later. Disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, without doing what I've told you to do, even though I just picked you a day ago. Can you imagine being one of those disciples going, uh, Jesus? Like, I know you're preaching, you gave us some things to do, but bro, you had not even finished your sermon yet. Like, why are you coming down on me already? You, like, you're not even, you haven't said amen. Give me a second to catch what you're saying. So we've got to put ourselves in this situation, in this sermon that's taking place, He's throwing out this thing, just started the beginning of his ministry. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? But there hasn't been much opportunity for them to do anything. The disciples were just chosen. His fame and reputation was just starting to get big. He hasn't preached a bunch of sermons. This is the first big one. So is that really what he means to say, why don't you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you, when there hasn't been much opportunity? Or even the tone um, we talked about this last week, verse 24 and 26. Underline it, go back and read it later. Blessed are those, woe to this crowd. And when we think about woes, we think about warning, we think about danger. Um, but the woes here are more of a compassionate woe. We've probably all had that situation in our life where we have a friend, we're begging you, like, please, bro, like, you cannot go down this road. It's going to end badly for you. Don't do this. What can I do to stop you from going down that road? Have you all ever had that conversation? where you have to come over in the middle of the night. Like, I know you want to make this big decision. I know you think this looks right, but I'm begging you for everything that is good. Don't do this. And so these woes that Jesus is throwing out is that kind of a tone. It's not a warning. It's not a, you better not do this. It's, man, I'm begging you, please. There's a compassion in his voice. You think that money, you think that, that riches are going to make you happy, but I'm telling you, they won't. Please don't walk down that road. And then did Jesus just flip a switch and say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? When literally a minute ago he was pleading with us not to walk down that road. Does Jesus just immediately switch over? Or is his tone here possibly still compassionate? Or even the next one, this is the message, the beatitudes. 
attitudes, right? He's saying this is what a disciple looks like. This isn't the behavior that I'm going after. This is the attitude that I want you to have, the heart of Christ. I'm focusing on your attitude, but then he flips the switch and says, but do what I tell you. So I'm not worried about the attitude anymore. I'm worried about the actions. I'm not worried about the attitude. I'm wor- but, but even if you look at it just a hermeneutical standpoint, right before he was talking about fruit, bear good fruit. Fruit comes from within the tree, right? You ever seen anybody duct tape a grape to a vine? Look like a fool. But that's what Christians' lives look like when we try to fix the outside and we don't fix the inside. And Christ knows that. And then after that, and we'll get to this in a minute, but he talks about Bearing good, good fruit before, the second part he talks about the foundation is huge. The attitude, the mind of Christ is what's going to, if we don't have that firm foundation, everything's going to start falling apart. So here's where I want to just kind of camp out because I do not think, if I were to stand here and say, church, we must do what he says, naturally there's a thought in our mind that goes, or else what? If I don't do what Christ says, or else what? Will I be punished? Will I be thrown out? Do what he says, or else. And if we don't get this part right, then the rest of the work we do in Luke is going to look a little squirrely. Because this is the attitude, the mindset of Christ. We've got to answer this question right. It doesn't matter what you do if you don't know who he is. So what is Jesus' heart in this? I mentioned it earlier, but I think the first thing is a somber, broken question more than a rebuke. Almost every commentary that I've read this week titles this Jesus' rebuke. To what? Like I mentioned earlier, he just picked his disciples. His ministry is just getting started. Isn't it a little too early to be rebuking? Right? The disciples don't even have an opportunity to. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip over to James. James 1. And I want you, we're going to flip a little bit in the next little bit, because I want you to see some of this for your own eyes. Because I know, even though you didn't raise your hand, some of you discerners, some of you discerners, especially some of you church background people are going, mm, you're sounding a little liberal right now, Pastor. Well, you tell me we're not supposed to do what Jesus did. You're sounding a little squirrely here. So I want to show you through some text what I'm talking about. <coughs> it starts off with a plea in James 1, 22 through 25. <coughs> I'm sorry. James 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you have a pen, underline this next part. Deceiving yourself. Be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. Verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, into the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, is blessed in all that he's doing. He's worried about us being deceived. He's worried that if we focus on the action without focusing on the one calling for the action, we're going to deceive ourselves. We're going to start walking down this road. We're going to start journeying. I've got this. I'm under control. I've got this situation. I've got this Christianity thing figured out. I'm doing the list. I've got everything checked twice. He's going to find out if I'm not. I mean, nope. 
Uh, that's Santa Claus. So we just keep walking down this. Come on. Are y'all not with me? That was clever, man. That, was, that wasn't even my notes. I just can't. No. He's gone to, it's going to find us out. We're going to eventually deceive ourselves sooner or later. This is not the beauty of the gospel that he's preached to us. Do what I say. No, that's going to deceive ourselves. That road is going to end badly for us. And here's kind of, as I started diving in and saying, if I was on that crowd, if I was listening, um, here's maybe where I need to confess some and maybe backtrack a little bit. Now, we all know how the story ends if we've grown up in church. Ever since, I mean, even my daughter, when she was in four-year-old pre-K, uh, used to sing the song, I don't know what the title of it, but it's like, don't be a sad you see because they're sad you see. Like, we all know Pharisees and Sadducees are really bad dudes, right? Like, we just know. Uh, but at the core of it, at this time, like, they were killing it. They, these guys were doing all that the Bible had called them to do. They were following every rule, every regulation. They were well-respected in the town. They were well-loved by everyone around them. And so when I just read about the Pharisees, I naturally go, those dirtbags, Jesus doesn't want them to know him. I there's going to be a lot of spark and conflict towards the end of the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees. And ultimately, the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees are going to bring him into a court and have him killed because of blasphemy. But at this point in time, if we were just to not read ahead, if we were to focus, Jesus wants the Pharisees to know the gospel too. Jesus wants to free the Pharisees from the legalism that they're walking in. He wants them to know, like, you, like Lord, Lord, do you know me? If you know who I am, then all the stuff that I'm asking you to do will come naturally. But you're focusing on everything I'm asking you to do, but you're missing out on the king of kings standing right in front of you. He wants the Pharisees to know the gospel. He wants them to be liberated in the truth that is the gospel, that is Jesus. And number two, I think as we're looking at Jesus' heart in this, that he was wanting more than just obedience. He's wanting more than just obedience because like I just said, the Pharisees were being crazy obedient. They had everything figured out, but they were missing everything in front of him. So is there something more taking place? I think Jesus is longing for more than just a blind obedience. And I know that one might sound a little funny too. So let's go uh, flip over to Matthew 9. Does Jesus just want obedience? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Just obey me. Just do what I ask you to do. And then leave me alone. Right? Is that really the heart of our king? Matthew 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. Now, two weeks ago, this is the parallel version of something we preached two weeks ago as we talked about uh, Matthew Levi at the tax booth. Simon Peter, same name, right? It goes by both. Matthew Levi, same name, goes by both. That's where we pick it up. Verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to them, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, just right there, that's totally scandalous because we don't have time. Go to listen to the sermon a couple weeks ago. Um, Jesus is asking a tax collector who is basically stealing from the Jews, and he's working for the Romans. So all the Jews hated him because he was stealing from them, and he had sold his soul over to the Romans. Uh, there's these guys called the Zealots that would literally kill people like this. If they were leaning more, if the Jews were leaning more towards being like the Greeks and like the Romans in this Hellenization of culture, they would just wait till a big party was going on. They'd have a little dagger in their pocket. And, I mean, everyone's dancing, everyone's having fun. You're going to walk up, and I'm going to stab you right in between the ribs and keep going. That's how much the Jews hated guys that were working for Jews that were working for Rome. 
Okay, so this is scandalous that Jesus would say, I'm a Jew, I'm this Messiah, and I'm picking you to be one of my disciples. Keep going. Verse 10, and Jesus reclined at the table in the house, <clears throat> excuse me, in the house, what, yep, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining with him. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, those who are well have no need of physicians, but those who are sick. Now here's where I want you to we'll camp out on this. There's more than just obedience. Verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I've came to call the righteous, I've not came to call the righteous, but sinners. And what he's doing here, he's quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, which says something very similar. For I desire the steadfast love not sacrifice the, law, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire steadfast love. I want my people to love me as God, not just do what I tell them to do. Not just make sacrifices and not just follow all the rules and not just all this stuff. I want them to know me as God. I want them to love me as their Savior. I don't just want their stuff. I don't just want their sacrifices. I don't just want their obedience. If they give me all the obedience and sacrifice in the world, but they don't know me as king, what has happened here? If we give, if we're so obedient, we just constantly do what he says, do what he says, do what he says, but we don't know who he is, then we're farther than Christ than we started off. We just keep wandering farther and farther. But here's the catch. We think we're becoming more holier and holier. Because we're doing what he's asked us to do. Uh, what about the third one? If you're in Matthew 9, just flip. Or you might not have to flip. Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Because here's the, here's the last one that where I'm, where I'm trying to understand, trying to convey about Jesus and his tone here is that he's, not, he's looking for more than just obedience. Uh, he's, he's broken and somber that it's not a rebuke. And the last one, he's worried about people's souls. If you're still kind of on the fence, I think this might be the trump card. No pun intended. This is the one that, this is the one that got me when I was studying. Matthew 7, picking up at verse 21. Matthew 7. Now I'm going to read verse, uh, Luke 46 real fast. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Let's pick it up, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So when we focus on what he's asked us to do and we forget the most important part of who he is and we walk down that life thinking, hey, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I, I, I was raised in church. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm just, I'm just going to keep walking. I just got to be obedient. Jesus is more proud of me when I'm obedient and he's disappointed in me when I disobey. So I'm going to try to walk this line and follow after what he's asked me to do but we're never pursuing the Lord, Lord part of it. We're never actually wondering about his affections for us. 
We're never questioning his love for us. We're never thinking and meditating on how good of a God he is. I mean, why do you think David meditated on the law? I mean, do you guys ever just lay around dreaming about the Ten Commandments? Oh, honor your father and your mother. So good, I'm asleep to that tonight. Woo! No, because that's a good God that gave him a standard. He's thinking about how good of a God he is that he gave them a standard to live by. What a God is that? What kind of king is that? That actually cares about his people. We probably all have a friend or a family member um, in this room, and I, in student ministry and in pastoral ministry, I see this so often. Someone that has grown up in church their whole life, and something really bad happens to them. I'll give it to them. A death, a divorce, something just crushes their soul. Because it's life. There's sin. We're broken people. Something destroys them. And their response, and I, I mean, I can just picture faces that I've conversations I've had with tears rolling down their eyes. I did all this for God, and this is how he repays me. Look at what I did for God. I went to church, and I prayed, and I read my Bible. And, and, and this is what happens? This is, this is the God of love? Look at, look, at what it's, look at what I've done. I've even tithed. I stole my parents' money to tithe, pastor. And this is how he repays me. And just the most gut-wrenching words is, if this is Christianity, man, I'm, I'm out. If this is what your God is, I'm, I'm done with Christianity. I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with this. And it's because they focused on do what I say, but they totally missed out on who is the Lord doesn't matter what you do if you don't know who he is. doesn't matter what you accomplish or the rules that you follow if you don't know who he is. And so tonight, as we're reading through the scripture, Jesus is maybe for the first time creating a new category for us. Uh, I just call it the unsaved Christian, which if it sounds like an oxymoron, it is. The unsaved Christian. Christian, the one that is trying to follow all the rules, trying to follow all the regulations. They're walking through this, but they're no closer to Christ. They're actually farther away. Their heart is becoming hardened because they think they can do this on their own. They think if I follow all of these rules, this theology is called a semi-Pelagian theology, and it was cast out in the early first and second century uh, because of this, because it's heresy. They would believe that there's something, there's enough good inside of you, there's enough common grace given to you that you can earn God's favor back if you try hard enough. If you just keep walking, if you keep pursuing, if you keep following these rules, that you can earn God's favor. And so the big question is, then why did Christ come? If that's true, why did Christ come? So here's, I mean, as we're just kind of wrestling through and dissecting some of this together, um, the next question would have to be, uh, so what do we do? How do these people come about? Where did these unsaved Christians come from? I think the first one is culturally. Now, come on, raise your hand if you grew up in the South. Raise your hand if you grew up in church in the South. All right, so here's what we have to understand. Um, everyone's a Christian in the South. You just are. You just, that's what you do. That's the natural. Everyone's a cultural Christian. They just, yeah, I know I need to get back in church. Who, who told you that? 
I, I, I know, Pastor, I need to read my Bible. It says who? I, I know the good thing. The good thing to do, I, I, need, I just need to get back in church. I hear that all the time. I just, why? Why? You have no love for the Father, so you can go sit in a room or a, room or a chair or a pew or whatever ugly carpet you got. It doesn't matter. When my preaching voice comes in, you can just get someone to yell at you for 30 minutes because that's what you're supposed to do. This nominal, unsaved Christianity that we call cultural Christianity in the South. This, this people group that Jesus is talking about culturally. And so if we were to reread verse 43, back, we're back in Luke, I'm sorry. Luke 6, 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. So you might culturally accept Christ and want to become a Christian, but your fruit is showing you otherwise. Your fruit is showing that like, there's no Christ in you, there's no repentance in you. I mean, you, you, I, 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 for this reason, I cannot listen to Christian, or uh, well, I don't really listen to a bunch of Christian music, but country music for this same reason. Like, we boast in country music about getting drunk on Saturday and hitting the pew on Sunday. And that's what's normative. Don't worry, that's just the Holy Spirit. It's just coming. I'll start bouncing in a minute, and then it's just going to let, I'm just going to go. Kidding. So that's what's happened. It's just this cultural Christianity. I think the second reason where this unsaved Christians come from uh, is just an idea of selfishness. And we start to see this take place in Scripture where people are coming to Jesus for his miracles, but they don't actually want Jesus. They just want his stuff. Now, how often do we do that? I mean, there's an old saying that there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole, right? How many times, I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many times have we said this before? Jesus, if you just do this for me one time, I'll never ask for anything again. Anyone else? We bargain, we plead, because we get in this situation where we say, I don't really want you, Jesus. I just know you can fix this. So will you get me out of this mess, and then I'm just going to keep walking and doing my life just the way I was doing it before. But I've reached an impasse where I cannot pass this unless the sovereign hand of God comes in. So I need you now. I didn't need you two months ago, and I won't need you in another week. Uh, but right now, I could really use you. So this idea of cultural Christianity, these unsaved Christians, is because we don't really want Jesus. We just want what he has to offer. We just want his stuff. We're just selfish. So we think that if I can just do what he tells me to do, I don't really have to focus on the Lord, Lord part. I'm just going to do what he's going to tell me to do. I'm going to earn enough in my God, Jesus piggy bank that whenever I need a big favor, like getting into school or getting this girl or whatever the relationship or whatever I need, if I have enough stored into my Jesus piggy bank, then I can just run that card. It's going to get accepted and I'm good to go. Please tell me how that works for you. I'll go ahead and tell you it's not. Uh, maybe another one. Misunderstanding of our role. All we think we're supposed to do is just follow the rules. And there's a quote by John Piper. If you've ever read anything by John Piper, you might have to read this like 12 times. Um, is it on? The, here we go. This is, this is just, it just got me. The ultimate essence of evil is not simply breaking God's rule or God's commands. The deep honor of our sin is not simply that we cross over some line that God told us not to cross. The ultimate essence of evil is not simply that we break God's commands. The problem with our sin is that we love or prefer anything over God. 
Let me read that one more time. The problem with our sin is that we love or prefer anything over God. Unless we see that that evilness of sin lies in desiring, preferring, loving anything more than we love God, we'll have no idea what we do, why we do what we do. The glory of Christ's victory in the cross, the majesty of God, and the deep satisfaction of the Christian life will be lost on us as we stagger with our eyes down trying to stay within the line of God's commands. Now, I could, I, again, I understand, and I'll post this on Facebook later so you can read over it some more. But if we just read that last little bit, the glory of Christ's victory in the cross, the majesty of God, and the deep satisfaction of the Christian life will all be lost on us as we stagger with our eyes down, trying to stay within the line of God's command. If we just try to follow the rules, if we try to, Kevin Young wrote a great book about this, if we just try to, I just want to live in God's will, I don't want to do anything other than God's will, so I've just got to keep my eyes down, I've just got to focus on, okay, I've got to do what the Lord told me to do, when if I just pick my eyes up, the Lord is standing there and He will guide me. But I'm too worried about what I'm going to do if I'm going to mess this thing up. It's spiritual narcissism at its best, that you're really in control of everything. No, we're missing out on the beauty that is the gospel. And probably some of the reasons that you're sitting here today is because you've gotten who the gospel is. Why do you think there's an 80% rate of students that drop out of the church between high school and college? Because all it was was rules and regulations. And for the first time in college, there is freedom. You don't have rules or regulations. I don't have anyone telling me what to do. But that's the shame of the gospel. He's not telling you what to do. He's telling you who you are as a son or daughter of the king. And everything will flow out of that. It's not just a bunch of rules and regulations. We've misunderstood our roles. And the last one, that we've misunderstood the Bible. We've misunderstood the Bible. I think there's two kinds of warnings. And I've, I've kind of seen this play out in my kids. Um, there's a compassionate warning like, hey man, that's, gonna, that's not going to end well for you. You need to watch out. And there's another warning of, uh, like, like today, uh, my daughter tried to take her fingernail polish off by herself and so got um, what's it with nail polish remover and went into our bathroom and shut the door and so there's nail polish remover everywhere and there's they say very quick but very stern warning if you don't get out of my sight right now you're not going to live anymore that's I'm just just being honest if you don't get out of this room right now something bad's going to happen here there's going to be uh, I won't go that far my, my thoughts were not pure so there's two kinds of warnings. There's, hey, honey, that's really going to hurt you. Don't do that. Please tr just trust me. That's, that's not going to end well. Don't do that. And then the other warning is you better move it or you're not going to be able to sit for a week. And we take this Luke 6.46 as a threat warning. You better do what I tell you to do or else. But it's a compassionate, heartfelt warning. Don't call me a Lord's word unless you do what I'm telling you to do. If you call me Lord, if you focus on me as Lord, if you know and love and understand me as the King of kings and the Lord of lords that deeply, intimately cares for you, loves you, shepherds you well, and everything else will just take care of itself. Your attitude, your affections, your love will take care of itself, but you've got to focus on me. So if I could just boil it down as we start to close, I think there's probably two people two different kinds of people in this room. Overly simplified, of course. Um, 
I think there's probably some unsaved Christians in here. I think there's probably some people that have grown up in church, they've walked the tightrope, all they understand of Christianity is do what God asked me to do and don't talk back. And follow the line, follow the rules. There's no real relationship. There's no real affection. There's no real, my dad loves me. I just want to go sit in his lap. I just want to fellowship with him. I just want to talk with him. I just wonder what he thinks about this. I mean, I'm a grown man. Sometimes I look like a grown man. I'm not really a grown man. But I'm a grown man, and two, three, four, five times a week, I'll call my dad just to ask random opinions about different things. Why? Because he cares and he loves me. Do we ever just call our dad, Ricky, our family pastor, just like when he starts to pray, he'll say, okay, let's call home. Just being facetious. But do we ever just call home? Do we ever just talk? Do we ever just wonder what God is thinking? Do we ever just wonder what he wants for our life? Do we ever have the freedom to just pull up a chair and sit next to him and just talk and commune and enjoy? Do we actually know him as that kind of father or do we know him as a Nazi Germany father? If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to end your life. What kind of God, what kind of relationship do we think we have? If all Christianity to you is following a bunch of rules and regulations lest you disappoint the God of the universe, you might need to start talking about who God really is to you. You might be in this category of unsaved Christian because you're missing out on the joys of Christianity. I hate rules. I'm just tell, I mean, just me being candid, I hate, if you tell me something, I'm going to do the opposite every single time just because. And if that's what all that Christianity was, was a, a list of rules and regulations for me to follow, I would not give my life to that. The only reason I've given my life to the gospel is because there's a God who's crazy for me, who loves me, who thinks about me. His thoughts outnumber the grains of sand on this planet, and he loves me that deeply. And he, since he created all of this, he knows how best to operate. So when he tells me, hey, you should operate in this manner, well, you created the sun and the stars and you love me, so let's go. I'm not going to get it right the first time, but I'm going to try. And I'm not trying to earn your affection or earn your favor. I'm trying because you already love me and I'm your son and we are your daughters and you take pleasure in us. So if Christianity for you is a bunch of do this and don't do this, if you keep doing this, if you got 51% in your account by the time you die, you're good to go. But if you don't have enough good deeds to get to heaven, I'm sorry. That's what Christianity is to you. Do you really know the gospel of Jesus? Answer, no. You don't. Or maybe the second person in this room, um, if you are saved, if you do walk in this freedom and this salvation of Christ as your Father, be careful what you're teaching. Be careful the message that you're sending. Be careful of the gospel that you're presenting to people. I mean, I think that's one of the big things that why we do uh, missional communities. Now, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that people have brought you here. Um, but why, one of the reasons we do missional communities is because we don't want to say, hey, you need to come to church. You need to get to church. You need to get to church. I know. I know. I know, Pastor. I need to get there. Like, no, just come into my home. Come hang out with us. Come eat a meal with us. Come study the Bible with us, and maybe we can teach you a little bit about who this Jesus guy is. But we're not telling you that you have to get here to know Jesus. We're not telling you that if, if you come here, then you can check a box and you'll feel good and maybe, maybe salvation will come to you eventually. So be careful with the message that you're portraying. Be careful with your heart 
how you're explaining the gospel to people, lest that they fall into the trap that all I've got to do is just do what God has told me to do, but there's no real relationship there. There's no real regulations there. Do my wife and I have uh, communication? Yes. Do we have rules? Yes. Does anyone know some of my wife and I's rules? No. Because I'm just going to tell you about my wife. I'm not going to tell you what she expects of me. I'm not going to tell you all these things. If I don't do this, Bree's not going to love me this week. Hey man, can I come stay at your house? I forgot the trash again. No, that's, that's not how a healthy marriage works. The same way, that's not how the gospel works. Give them Jesus, not a list of to-dos. When you're talking to people about the beauty of the gospel, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about who he is and what he's done for you and the freedom that he's offered you. Not, hey, you need to read your Bible and you need to pray and you need to get to church. That's a good starting place. Right? The first thing you just did was throw out three to-dos that they have to keep up with. So you've naturally just subconsciously leaked in some legalism for them. Make sure you do this and this and this. Give them Jesus. Give them the gospel. So here's how I just want to end. Um, this, you, can, you can ask my wife. This message has, has messed me up this week. For a lot of different reasons. But I don't want a pastor here to feel like God is going to love me more. And I don't want my kids to know Jesus because then I feel like God's going to be happy with me. I mean, I mentioned one of my wife and I's rules. Um, She is not allowed to throw out the D word. Divorce? No, she can do that all day long. I know she's playing. She ain't working. She ain't leaving me. Right? Just kidding. Um, But seriously, where are you going to go? She's not allowed to throw out the word disappointed. I just have a thing. I don't want to disappoint people. I think most pastors are that way. I think a lot of people are that. We're just natural people pleasers, right? We want to keep people happy. And sometimes for me, I, I, can, I can have a temper and I can throw out this facade of, I don't care what you think. And, and sometimes it's genuine. Uh, like, never mind. I could give you some examples. I'll, I'll give you one. We were in the funeral procession yesterday, and it just drives me crazy when people don't pull over. So in the funeral procession, we're going down to bury her uncle, uh, and a car wasn't pulling over, and I literally swerved at them to get them to stop. I don't care what that person thinks. That was rude. I'm going to tell you. Stop. Turned out to be a really old lady, and I felt a little guilty. She probably just couldn't see. But true story. Let me bring it back. As we close. I, don't, I just hate the feeling that I've disappointed anybody. So as I've studied this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The natural feeling that comes up, and I'm sorry, God, I've disappointed you. I'm sorry I'm not doing what you want me to do. I'm sorry, again, I've disappointed you. I've let you down. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to really work harder this time. I'm going to study my scriptures more. I'm, I'm going to do this because I'm sorry I haven't done what you told me to do. Like, don't, don't be disappointed. I'll, I'll work harder. I'll, I'll try better, God. Don't be disappointed in me. And with that, what God has been teaching me this week is, is exactly what I'm preaching. 
if I understand the Lord, Lord, that I'm calling out to, I understand that's not in his nature to be disappointed in us. If I understand the first part of that, Lord, Lord, I would understand that there's no way ever, listen to me, ever that the God of the universe is disappointed in me. Ever. Because when I sinned and he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, every sin was future sin at that point. He's already died for it. 2,000 years ago, he died for everything. So why do I think I've disappointed him now when he knew all of that on the cross? So instead of working harder on not disappointing him, I need to focus on who he is and understand the truth of the gospel that he's never disappointed in us. Church, he's not disappointed in you, ever. How much freedom does that start to well up in you? If you're already fully accepted by the king, if you can walk in that kind of freedom, then, then what does that lead you? Welcome to the beauty of the gospel, man. Welcome to the truth that is Christianity. That is where we long for. That is where we're going. So as we end tonight, uh, we always end this way, but I think it's just especially special tonight. Communion. When we take communion tonight, we get to understand and we get to see fleshed out that God is not disappointed in us. He knew that we were sinners. He knew that we had gone astray. And he covered 100% of it by the cross. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more or love us less. Let's just sit on that for a little while. There's nothing that we can do to make him love us more or love us less. So when we go take communion tonight, when we rip off the bread which represents his body, we dip it into the juice which represents his blood, that means that it is finished, that it is done, that he has paid every sin for you, that you're not a disappointment, that no matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you're going to do, the future doesn't surprise him, doesn't catch him off guard, doesn't make him disappointed in you, it doesn't change the way he views or his affections for you. The only hiccup there is if we think we're doing what he's asked us to do and we're actually walking farther away because we don't know him. So I'm going to pray. And if you're like me, I mean, again, I've been working through this and praying through this for a while. Uh, We we probably need some space to consider and to ponder. So the band's going to come up and and we're going to take communion. Uh, But the, the, the big question, the big idea doesn't matter what you're doing if you don't know who he is. So that's just my question. Are you just a cultural Christian tonight? Are you an unsaved Christian tonight? That you're just focused on what you need to do, but you've never really been accepted and forgiven by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is it? Where do you stand with the King tonight? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that compassionate warning for us. I thank you that you were preaching to your disciples and to the tons of people, the thousands of people sitting around you that had just started following you, that they had seen you perform miracle after miracle. And you're saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? God, would you forgive us for rushing to the not do what I tell you part? 
would you forgive us as, as that's where our mind races to? Where have I not done what he's told me to do? And how can I fix that right now? God, instead of rushing to the Lord part, that you are our Lord, you are our Savior, you are our Redeemer, you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, you are the justifier, you have adopted us, you have saved us, you will sustain us, you will never leave us nor forsake us. That is you, that is your nature, that is your love, that is your character. And if we fall in love with that, and if we pursue that, and if we dwell, and if we focus on that king, the king that loves us no matter what, the king that is never disappointed in us, then we can't help but to do what you told us to do. Out of that overflow, we can't help but to love those around us. We can't help but to make disciples to those around us. We can't help but take care of the widows and the orphans. We can't help. We can't walk into Walmart. We can't walk into town without seeing the needs around us. And when we get to heaven, we're going to say, when did I take care of you? When did I feed you? You're going to say back to us, when you took care of the least of these around you, that's when you did it. God, if we're so obsessed with how much you love us, then all the action will take care of itself. It'll naturally happen. So God, would you forgive us for focusing on what we need to do? God, tonight would we just sit? Would we just think and ponder, not on what we need to do, but what you've done for us and how you've sustained us and how you love us and how you will carry us through. And you say that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And I know some of us in this room feel a heavy burden. walk into the freedom of salvation tonight. God, for those that have questions, God, that they're pondering, I am an unsaved Christian. If I got this thing wrong, I thought I was just supposed to follow rules. I didn't know it was actually about God that loved me in a relationship. I was just doing my best to, to appease Him. God, maybe tonight for the first time they would surrender their life to you, the God of salvation, to you, the good Father. And if that's you, uh, myself and Kyle will be in the back. Just come talk to one of us. But for the rest of us, as we take communion, why shouldn't we celebrate? Why shouldn't we be ecstatic that a God loves us? deeply for us. And his love for us isn't conditional. It's not based on what we do and what we don't do. But His love for us is based on how good of a God He is. What, what a freedom is that. God, thank you for that love. Let us remember that as we take communion tonight. God, it's in your name that we pray.